Okay, thank you so much for, for joining us today for the AIWA Los Angeles Las Vegas section, um, the section meeting today. Uh, today we have a very exciting program and uh, uh, you, you will enjoy a lot. And uh, for folks online, if you want to ask any question, which is highly encouraged for a better interaction, please uh, just let us know online, click uh, raise hand or just in the chat so you'd like to speak out. We'll enable your microphone uh, so you can, um, uh, uh, speak out and uh, ask your question. Uh, before we started, we have a few uh, logistic issues, uh, uh, information. So uh, for folks here online, the restroom is, uh, um, you can see here, there's a, uh, on your left hand there, uh, you can see the um, restroom. And uh, we have coffee near the sink. We have cookie, bottle of water on the back and check-in table. And uh, also, uh, uh, if you haven't picked up your badge, please do so and uh, sign in. And uh, just a couple of words, because since Andy is also our um, member of AIWA, I want to uh, mention something about the membership, which is very important. And hopefully uh, folks here who are um, not member yet uh, will be interested in joining. So AIWA has different kinds of, it's a nonprofit organization, professionals uh, like Andy and, uh, oh. Um, so we also have like a high school free membership. Uh, so uh, you can go to aiwa.org/hs, and we have different level of membership. Uh, so on the back, you can see our membership brochure. Then we have like um, you know uh, student professional program and uh, discount fifty percent off for if you are young professional under thirty five years old but above college. Uh, we have high school student membership free and K twelve educator membership also free. And uh, we got pretty uh, good sign up recently. Uh, if you forgot to renew, please do so. And we have uh, uh, quite a couple of new uh, sign up uh, join the membership. So we have a very good career resources online. And we also have a brochure here. Uh, so please take a look. And uh, it's like a great family in our space. So help each other. Uh, so please uh, consider it. And we also have the um, here. Um, the paper plane uh, is good for design, build, and fly. Uh, it's not the real one, but it's you know for you know elaborate um, promotion. And uh, we also, if you join the member, you'll receive the uh, free magazine Aerospace America. Uh, it's also online. It's a very wonderful uh, magazine with all the, uh, a lot of insider story. Uh, so please uh, look into our membership, and uh, then you can see the just like our great uh, member here, uh, like uh, Dr. Andy Crash. Um, so, um, and uh, our speaker today, uh, Dr. Andy Crash is uh, a JPL uh, engineer and uh, he's been working on a very exciting program. Um, and you read his bio, so I don't want to repeat again and Andy can tell you a lot more exciting thing about his life. Um, but the main thing is, can I talk about this? You, you, you actually a qualified astronaut. <laughs> and this, uh, I, I interviewed for it. Yeah, he, he interviewed. Uh, so, certain things he cannot talk about, but uh, but this is okay. He he went to uh, uh, went for interview for become a, a NASA astronaut. Uh, so it, it's kind of interesting. So he's not just a scientist engineer, but he's actually also uh, astronaut candidate, right? Not yet. No, uh, inter interviewee. Okay, very good. So um, it's a great uh, pleasure and a great excitement. So let's welcome Dr. Andy Crash for great uh, today presentation. Thank you.
Thank you very much. And thank you to all who are here in person or uh, available online. I'm honored to be back here with AIAA and the Los Angeles, uh, Las Vegas section on here and giving one of these talks. About a year ago, we got together and talked about small spacecraft and small spacecraft exploring the solar system here. And as part of that conversation brought up some of the other activities that I do work on. I've been lucky enough throughout my career that not only am I working on spacecraft that are exploring out to Mars and Moon and other uh, places of interest in the solar system, but I work on vehicles that dive deep into the ocean, uh, explore Arctic and Antarctic ice, and help us to uh, broaden our capability for exploration. Today, I'd like to dive into that a little bit more and speak to why I believe the oceans are such an important resource for us, not only for exploration purposes, but also so that we can learn and improve our ability to explore the solar system itself on there. It's often been said that uh, we know our moon better than 90% of our oceans here on Earth. And together with Woods Hole Oceanographic Institutes, uh, we aim to change that. On this expedition, we're testing a platform with new technology and new designs that will one day go down to the deepest part of our Earth's ocean. There's dangers to it, there's risks, sending a vehicle down that deep, and that makes it really exciting. Our goal is to create a vehicle that can easily explore the deepest parts of the ocean. I've always been interested in exploration and the unexplored areas of Earth and the solar system. We have to be able to do this sort of exploration on Earth before we start thinking about how we might do it on the ocean worlds of the solar system. The Hadal Zone is from 6,000 meters to 11,000 meters depths in our ocean. The pressure is over 16,000 psi, so it makes it really difficult to get there and explore. There's dangers to it, there's risks sending a vehicle down that deep, and that makes it really exciting. The Hadal Deep Sea Explorer Orpheus is basically a brand new vehicle. We wanted to start off really small, just getting the vehicle in the water, getting everything wet, knowing that all of our systems can work in the water and are running and collecting data and our cameras work. As we were writing the initial code for Orpheus, we were headed out to the monuments toward deeper water, hopefully to test some of the capabilities of Orpheus. Everybody was a little bit nervous on edge. Whenever you cut the safety line, it's a big new step. As we transect across the seafloor, 
They're taking pictures and stitching all of the pictures together. The idea is that eventually we could have a fleet of Hadal drones that can all work together. Today, we tested out one aspect of the autonomous mission, one of the most important aspects, and that's dropping the weights so that the vehicle can come to the surface again and we can recover it. has been a really great step towards providing 3D images of the seafloor to the scientific world. It's all new, it's all exciting, it's all a learning experience. Getting down to those depths takes a lot of work and there's still so much more exploring to do. Orpheus is a vehicle we've been working on since about 2018 on here. And it actually, there's a pair of them, as you saw, both Orpheus and Eurydice as we descend down to the Hadal depths. Now, why is NASA involved in this at all on here? It turns out as we go and explore the solar system, as we seek out life on worlds beyond our own out there, really these ocean worlds where we think we might be able to find life, we find that testing in analog environments is the best way that we can uh, carry out these missions on here. When we start with exploration, when we start building these craft, one of the most challenging pieces is that we do not fully understand the environment or we do not fully prepare for it along the way. On Europa, at the bottom of the ocean, uh, well, first you have about two to 20 kilometers of ice on this moon of Jupiter, followed by about 100 kilometers of ocean water, as best we can tell. With this very deep ocean on there, but a much smaller world, it turns out that the pressures at the bottom of Europa's ocean are about the same as the pressures at the bottom of the Mariana Trench here on Earth. So by developing and by testing our vehicles here on Earth, we are testing in a near environment that we can reach at this point prior to getting out to Europa. Now, Orpheus and the Orpheus vehicles um, on here are powered by commercial off-the-shelf uh, technology on board. There is a Raspberry Pi that is uh, in the front of it there, uh, uh, running the full system on board. A lot of the sensors that are in there are, uh, are coming from places like Adafruit and SparkFun within the, uh, the primary sphere. And then it's married with some uh, deep ocean type technology, such as the thrusters that are on there, the lights, things that are rated for the pressures that are there. But the fundamental pieces that are in the core of Orpheus itself are in your smartphone, they're in your laptop, they're the same parts that are out there. Orpheus as a vehicle overall is, uh, in terms of an analog, is very close to the Ingenuity helicopter for uh, uh, Mars on here, except we're going down to the bottom of the ocean. We are designed to not only survey over distances, but then to land at the bottom, to sit on these two legs and take a closer look at what is going on down there before taking off again and surveying the surrounding environment. 
when Orpheus uh, departs, it is one of our smaller vehicles that we use for the deep ocean. And it has to be robust enough to survive the waves or it reaches the surface. But once you descend down, not as large as many of the other vessels. It's about two meters in size and about uh, 300 pounds or so uh, when, you're, when you're lifting it up. So tipping it off the side of a ship on there still takes a crane, but you can move it around with one or two people at least. As we developed Orpheus, we put a number of different features on board here. Uh, we're taking a look from the bottom side of the vehicle itself on here. And you can see that the electronics in the pressure housing, this glass sphere that is at the front, contains a one atmosphere environment. Actually, we dropped that a little bit in vacuum, uh, but commercial off-the-shelf technology in the front. We have sensors that are dedicated to the mission at hand, just reaching the bottom uh, and just um, uh, traversing about two meters off the bottom there with our, our altimeter. But other than a altimeter on board, we actually don't use any sonars on this particular vehicle there. They're too expensive for us. We, go, we went along this, uh, the lines of low cost exploration. And with that, we use visual odometry. So we have a number of cameras that are looking at features on the bottom and with those features, able to construct the path that we are traversing and how far we have actually traveled. We have our landing skids that I've mentioned, and in the center of the vehicle, a customizable payload and sampling bay that we can put different instruments depending on what we are going to carry out. A uh, connectivity, temperature, and depth uh, instrument, or CTD on there, which is standard for many different ocean vessels, letting us know how deep we have gone, what the temperature of the water is, and what the connectivity is, as those three parameters really dictate the speed of sound in water and a lot of the various sonar measurements that uh, we might need to take with other things. We have four thrusters on board, two that are vertical, two that are horizontal, allowing us to traverse across the bottom. And then we have descent and ascent weights that allow us to go down in essentially an unpowered state until we trigger those weights to drop. Then we turn into a fairly neutrally buoyant vehicle. And finally, ascent weights that we can drop to allow us to come back up to the surface on here. So there's some custom pieces on here that are designed for the fact that we are operating in an ocean. Uh, we have a buoyant environment that we can work in by playing with our density, and so we have these droppable weights on board. We have the landing skids for how close we're getting to the bottom, and we have that altimeter that happens to work in an acoustic manner on here. But otherwise, all these things are a generic system. This would look very similar if we were making a drone and operating it uh, in uh, air today. Now, Orpheus has been on a number of different missions over time. Uh, we've been deploying it since 2019 on here. We designed it for 11 kilometers depth. Uh, the, there are components of the moment on there that are only rated down to six kilometers. And that's just because we are iterating uh, what missions that we're actually carrying out. We've been off of uh, New England a handful of times, uh, Florida once, and we're headed up to the Aleutian Islands next year with these vehicles to start carrying out actual science operations on board. But it is meant really for this high-risk scouting and map generation. For ocean vehicles, this thing is low cost. You can build one for several hundreds of uh, thousands of dollars on here, as opposed to millions to tens of millions of dollars for many of the more traditional vehicles that are out there. And we're gonna go down for a short period of time, something like six to 12 hours of endurance, so about a half day before popping back up, uh, charging the batteries and continuing uh, to carry out our mission on board. We've done a number of different things on here uh, to make the vehicle a little easier to use, including having uh, altitude hold, which you might find on your various drones out there and follow and doing terrain 
uh, following navigation on board, uh, having uh, a mission scripting that if you've worked spacecraft operations is very similar to actually run sequences on board here and kind of married the experience from Woods Hole to what was available from JPL. But again, you might ask on why are NASA engineers so invested in the ocean side of things? Uh, and, I, and I do point you towards Europa itself, this moon of Jupiter that's out there. Ice-covered ocean uh, uh, on the surface of this uh, world. And underneath, underneath that ice, at least underneath the ice here on Earth, we find that it can be teeming with life. So we don't know what's on Europa. We do know we can explore ice environments here on Earth. And every time we find an interface, uh, an ice water interface on here, we have found life. Every time we found water on Earth, we tend to find that life continues to survive uh, in, and thrive in these environments. So our investigations were to say, well, how can we get a closer look at this ice water interface here? Uh, and as we, uh, as we do take a look with this, we find that life not only thrives in terms of microbes and um, these uh, algal mats that are on the bottom, but that those serve as an ecosystem for other things that might come up and eat there. Not only do they eat there, but they actually live in the protection of the algal mat. They'll leave eggs and such uh, within there as these fish approach. And then those support a larger and larger uh, set of species beyond that there. Every time we find a interface like this, we tend to find life tends to anchor to it. They like the fact that uh, because of buoyancy, we have nutrients that come up to the surface uh, or that uh, they have a safe place to uh, live on here. But the problem is when explore these areas with little drones or uh, with our various explorers, the very act of us approaching the surface tends to destroy it. If we take a more traditional submersible that has thrusters on board and approach the surface to take a sample, those thrusters do a very good job of uh, cleaning it off. So there's nothing more that we can actually do at that spot on there. So based on these lessons, we actually designed a new type of vehicle, a roving vehicle that was buoyant and would actually drive on the underside of the ice. With this type of vehicle on board, we have a primary body on here and two wheels along with a tail. So essentially, as we turn these wheels, the tail prevents us from rotating the whole vehicle itself, and we're able to traverse across the surface on here. Uh, this particular picture was taken up at June Lake uh, back in about 2016 or so and shows the up above it. Uh, but it is um, another one of these analog environments where because we have these ice covered lakes here, we can learn a lot by testing here on Earth before heading out deeper into the solar system. Now, Brewery or the Buoyant Rover for Under Ice Exploration has been around since about 2012 on here. This photo is from uh, 2013 up in the lakes near Barrow, Alaska. And here we were looking at methane seeps. The interesting thing about these methane seeps is that we know that there is a lot of methane coming out of these so-called thermokarst lakes up near Barrow. However, what we, what we don't know is why is the methane being generated? Is it being generated due to biological processes? Is it being generated due to geological processes up here? And through uh, various measurements with our scientists, we were able to determine what the ratios were on here. But part of the problem is finding these methane seeps. Uh, and to do so, 
we actually go when the ice is just freezing over on these lakes. Uh, because at that point, the turbulence caused by bubbles coming up from the bottom keeps the areas where there are seeps open water. So instead of having to find all the bubbles throughout a large lake on there, we just need to look for where are the dark spots of open water, and we can identify that these are highly likely to be seep areas. And we designed the rover to go under the ice so that we would stop having to poke a hole in the ice, look for bubbles, not seeing any bubbles, move 10 feet, poke a hole in the ice, look for bubbles, not finding the bubbles, and keep going and design this type of explorer on here. What we found though in the motivation for looking for these bubbles was that we were able to traverse this under ice environment and get that closer look to where there might be uh, life basically anchoring on. Now we started this vehicle, as I mentioned back in 2011, this was one of the early versions on here with some very narrow, essentially circular saw bladed wheels and a tether on board uh, that we could take and deploy under the ice. One of the first challenges we found was that we, without any navigation sensors, we did a lot of sweeping of snow off the ice itself in order to know where the rover was and how to drive it around. And the other challenges that we ran into and we continue to run into anytime there is a tether is that tether gets caught on everything. So it'll get tangled and we have circular saw blades for our wheels on there. So not only does it get tangled, but we slice that tether every time we deploy the tether that is out there. Not only that, but with a tether on board, it's not like we're going to have a long line going from Europa back to Earth on here. So we need to uh, cut that and remove it in some manner. And back in around 2013, we had upgraded our wheels. Uh, we put paddles on here because those circular saw blades would cut through very thin and soft ice allowing us to uh, basically the rover to surface up into the ice and get stuck there. So we put paddles on. And we switched over in this case to an RF system from the communication under the ice and removing the tether. Now RF in this case was a stand-in. We wanted to move to acoustic. This worked well enough out to about 50 feet on thin ice uh, and we were able to carry out this mission. But the idea was to cut that tether, to go to a more um, uh, wireless system here to communicate and run the rover itself. As we continued to iterate the rover uh, and uh, send it down under the ice. Sometimes it too looked a little bit uh, worried about what we were about to send it out on. Uh, the, uh, we learned more lessons along the way and we continued to iterate the program here. Now, Brewery has a lot of capabilities that are on board and some of these you might find as uh, close uh, analogs to what was on Orpheus earlier here. This particular version, we're using again, Raspberry Pis and the Raspi cameras on board. It's a lot of COTS electronics that are there. We have upgraded to an acoustic navigation and communication system. The wheels that I, as I mentioned, have been optimized and we do onboard localization and data processing uh, within here. The primary computer there is an Arduino Dewey. This is off the shelf, very accessible type of electronics that we are using, uh, which allows us to change things as we learn more and iterate very, very quickly along the way. There's a lot of 3D printed parts that are on the inside, such as the uh, light mounts that are in there, along with quick prototyping type manufacturing for the other pieces of the vehicle. The most important thing that we've been able to do though, is because it's so low cost, because we can test in these environments like June Lake, like Bear Alaska, is we can iterate and go from field test to field test, making appropriate upgrades along the way and learning from there 
designing a better vehicle, designing and optimizing a vehicle over time. So this thing yes. is- Hello? Yes, yeah, sure. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but, uh, but I was told that it was okay to go ahead and ask questions during your presentation. Sure. Uh, I have a question uh, on a real, uh, I realize these are prototype uh, units, but I was, uh, I was curious as to, uh, I see you're using uh, uh, batteries and such on these units, but for a, uh, for an actual uh, spacecraft that would be, uh, that would be sent to uh, uh, explore the uh, icy moons like Europa or Enceladus, Enceladus, uh, would they be using something like a, like a RTG, like some of these other probes in order to have the, uh, the availability of uh, underwater power for extended uh, exploratory dives and 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 just mission uh, mission uh, uh, endurance. Well, it, it really comes back to that last thing you said, and that is mission on there. So, depending on what the mission objectives were, you would be trying to optimize the vehicle for that. We can foresee that some missions that you might be carrying out might be very short duration on there, where there's not enough time to uh, or need to recharge the vehicle and there you might use a lithium primary or some other primary type of battery cell for kind of a one shot it's lower cost but also a lot lower of complexity than using something like an rtg but the benefits of an rtg are that it is going to allow you to extend your mission of course have power over longer uh, periods on there and um, carry out more objectives at the cost of increased complexity along the way so I think the challenge for us as we design these missions and identify the objectives are, should I carry one or even uh, just a couple of complex explorers underneath the ice, or perhaps many uh, explorers that have primary cells on board uh, that are very simple and kind, can kind of throw them away as objectives are met. All of this ties back to how much mass you can actually uh, bring out to the world that you're trying to explore on there. So I don't think we have a good answer yet, and it might be a hybrid where, say, a descent craft or a drill might have uh, some kind of RTG on board, and then a rover like this could have batteries and return to that for charging or some other solution on there, but uh, no good answer for you completely yet. So could, it, could there perhaps be a tethered type of uh, power from, uh, from a surface type uh, uh, base that would... Uh allow it to to have uh say the uh the actual probe itself be a, a simpler device and then uh and then have power uh, conducted down to it from from a stationary uh, uh surface type of uh uh power unit and, and and thus uh i realize that would perhaps limit uh maybe uh depth or, or distance that you would explore but but i guess that could be one one possible solution that's correct. There are all sorts of speculative concepts that are out there uh, that are being examined. Tethers from the surface certainly have been, though the trials and tribulations of going through two to 20 kilometers of ice, especially if that ice has any tectonic movement on there, means that tethers might be uh, dangerous if they are frozen in. Uh, some of the concepts that are also out there are to use acoustic pucks to transmit data all the way down through the ice and then perhaps an RTG down at the bottom or something on the surface if you needed the higher power that a tether could bring, but now you have the complexity of the tether there. And as I've shown uh, earlier on this, our own vehicle often gets tangled up in that tether. I see. Well, thank you very much for, for, the, uh, for, for answering the questions. Absolutely. So brewery as a vehicle, as I mentioned, is fairly small in here. Uh, yes, go ahead. 
So. Testing, testing. Is this working? Okay. So I actually have a question regarding your uh, use of wheels on Brewy. Uh, you mentioned earlier that an underwater kind of thrusting vehicle tends to destroy the samples that you want to collect. How do you avoid that with an underwater wheeled vehicle? Because it seems to me the, the wheels would destroy your samples too. Absolutely. And in some ways it does, but your contact area on the ice now comes down to just those points uh, that are on there. So traditionally, when we look back and look at how the rover has been moving, we see visually, we see no evidence of the rover in place because it's such a small contact area there versus the submersible with the thrusters tends to destroy an area that's actually larger than the submersible itself along the way. So we cannot claim that we're not damaging the environment at all but we're minimizing the impact, especially when we rotate our cameras up and look uh, directly above it. We haven't touched that particular area. Got it. Thank you. Sure. So one of the, uh, did you have a second question? No, no, I'm just. One of the important pieces of the Rover on here is that it is so portable. Uh, we designed it to be TSA compatible. We wanted to be able to put it on an aircraft in the payload bay and take it out there. And for now, certainly, we're not going to be transporting an RTG in the payload of a commercial aircraft. Uh, so we actually use Energizer C-cell batteries that you can uh, get in small packs in here to run the rover because it's not lithium. It's not something we have to worry about and transport out there, but is still an available uh, resource for us no matter where in the world that we are actually going. And we have taken this rover all over the place, including down to Casey Station into Antarctica, which is very much not Europa, but we did put an arrow to say where it might be somewhere out there. Now, we had many different visitors along the way when we were down in Casey Station. They were very curious about this big orange beast that was uh, in their environment, but the Adelie penguins were so fantastic to be waddling down uh, the road with us. And this was the version of the rover that we took out there, now outfitted with a number of different scientific instruments on board and beginning actually science operations down under the ice. When we first got down to Casey Station, which is one of the Australian stations down in Antarctica, just on the coast, uh, we went out to the wharf area that had a little of an ice shelf. And you can see here as the rover moves, you can really, there's not much evidence that the wheels are impacting over there. Uh, this is a stand-in tail at the moment on there. There's, you'll see one a little bit later with a little bit more instrumentation on board. Uh, but we were able to navigate and uh, traverse under the ice there uh, doing a vehicle checkout. In a couple of these slides, you'll see that there is a tether still attached. While we do use acoustic navigation for debugging purposes when we're here on Earth, we attach a tether that actually is weighted downward so we can get high-speed data back and forth. One of the challenges with acoustics is that you have a very latent link. It's about eight seconds uh, for some of the packets that come across there, and it's low bandwidth for the one that we're using. So uh, all the uh, issues of ocean-type exploration. And then we took the vehicle out to O'Brien's Bay about a mile away, a little bit more uh, protected from the uh, ocean environment here, and deployed out in an area that a tidal crack and some uh, other instrumentation and started to navigate underneath the ice itself on kind of a lawnmower path here before traversing up to the, uh, the tidal crack area. Well, as the vehicle moved, one of the things we were interested in was the very question that was asked earlier in terms of what's the impact of the tail for taking these measurements and the instruments there versus something that we push through the ice. 
when we drill down and push this through the ice, again, we remove that whole algal environment that we were interested in looking at. But with the tail, we're able to very precisely locate it against uh, an area that we want to make sensor measurements. And with that tail, we had additional advantages in that we could not only look uh, up close, but we could rotate it around. And when we did, we found all these bubbles that were starting to exist up near the ice. And in sampling them, those were actually oxygen bubbles. They were all the algal mats. They were creating their own oxygen uh, and uh, changing the environment for the microbes that were living around that. So we have a vehicle that someday we would love to get out to Europe, or at least a descendant of this vehicle, if you will, uh, so that we can uh, traverse under the ice. But when in that kind of environment, it's not just going to be flat. One of our early assumptions on Bury, an incredibly incorrect assumption, was that uh, icy lakes would probably be fairly flat underneath. What we have found is that the bubbles that come up uh, tend to form cavities such that they're almost like inverted craters on the moon that we have to traverse across and around. And not only that, you can get rafted ice where ice will crack and break and shift over itself such that you can end up with uh, crevasses that you need to cross. And in Antarctica, we found the same thing here when this was in a deliberate test. We drove brewery directly at the, uh, the crevasse on here to determine how would we best recover a uh, craft if we got stuck here. Now we have the tail on here. It's essentially an appendage we can use to push our way around. And with that, not only did we get ourselves into the crack, but we were able to traverse back out as well. And uh, we then afterwards did what most people would do is rather than go directly into the ditch, take it at an angle on here and you can cross over fairly well. But it's this analog testing that we can do here on earth that teaches us how we might navigate, how we might uh, traverse these various areas out here before we go into the solar system. And we found that as we were traversing around just on the inside of things, that uh, by being under the ice, we could actually measure the curvature of the ice and how uh, it had actually moved as a function of depth on here, found that in these thinner areas, uh, there were more algal mats and also that the conductivity had, uh, had essentially decreased in here. So we were getting more fresh water uh, in these regions rather than just the salt water there. So brewery has been a, a great asset for us. And the most important thing about brewery is that this version looks nothing like, well, maybe a little like the version from 2011 on here. It took testing, repeated testing and iteration over time for us to get to a vehicle that is now scientifically ready to explore. And this version as well is not going to be, uh, certainly not identical to what we might send out to Europa in the future, whether it be based on power source, as the question was asked earlier, or the electronics that are on board. But by being low cost, by using COTS type things and being able to be tested in an analog environment on earth, we can learn we can iterate, we can improve on our design here and optimize for what we might be trying to do in the future. And again, why is NASA playing around in uh, ice and environments on Earth? Because there are, so, there are a limited number of ocean worlds as we explore the solar system. And I wanna tie you back to another mission just briefly, which is called MARCO. And this is an interplanetary one. First interplanetary CubeSats uh, that went out to Mars in 2018 on here. They, when folded up, are what are called 6U, 6-unit CubeSats, uh, about 13 kilograms or so. And each one of these will fit as carry-on luggage underneath the seat in front of you on an aircraft. So they're pretty small. 
but they do represent uh, interplanetary missions in general on here, and we can speak to the various subsystems that are on board. And it's important that we do so before returning to the point of this talk on the ocean side of things. So if I remove the front cover of one of the two Marco spacecraft on here and allow you to see onto the inside, we can talk about what is carried on board. There is power generation, and in this case it is uh, by solar rays, but underneath this panel here are 12 18650 lithium-ion batteries of Panasonic's, at least in this particular case on here. They are stacked in there for power storage and uh, running the craft itself. We have a propulsion system based on thrusters, cold gas thrusters in this case here, to provide small jets to uh, orient or maneuver the craft on here. We have a radio, an RF radio at X-Band uh, developed by uh, JPL on here uh, that allows us to communicate back to Earth, but it's also a transponder, so it allows us to communicate based on ranging and Doppler information. We have amplifiers for that radio on board, and we have kind of the, the brains of the spacecraft in a command and data handling uh, and power system unit on board. Now, Marco's a little uh, unique in that it uses a TI MSP430 processor. Uh, Texas Instruments on there, the MSP430, well, this thing's often found in razor blades, shower heads, and toasters. Uh, we did actually send the brave little toaster to Mars. Uh, had a great day, took some pictures, unfortunately kept going. But uh, our processor is tiny, 128 kilobytes of uh, program space, eight kilobytes of RAM on there, completed an interplanetary mission. We have an attitude control system on board, relying on reaction wheels and a number of sensors and IMU to tell us how we are oriented here and basically are transmitting uh, dish along the way. So we have a brain. We have power storage, we have some kind of mobility on board, and a lot of it is built on commercial parts. I'm sure you picked this up already in there and that there is a great analog to all the systems that we have already been talking about here in terms of the ocean environment uh, for what this spacecraft is and what we are already using here on Earth. So if we start to compare for a very generic spacecraft, and Marco is one I know well, so I use that, along against, say, Orpheus, we find that there are a lot of parallels here. We have a hazardous environment. Yes, there is a pressure difference on there, but it is still hazardous in the outside world on here where we have high vacuum for uh, Marco and we have high pressure for Orpheus. Get into the inner skin though, and that environment is hopefully protected against. For Marco, we had to deal with radiation out in uh, the space environment, and in the ocean, actually corrosion is a major factor that you have to worry about here. So don't touch that environment if you can at all um, get away with it. Marco was rechargeable, but they actually, between Marco and Orpheus, they both use ion cells at this point on here. And for figuring out where we are, while one uses radio frequency and one uses acoustic, both rely on uh, ranging and Doppler information to determine where we are underneath the, uh, or in their respective environments. Again, while one is RF and one is acoustic, both have a significant latency tied in, one due to light time delay, the other due to speed of sound. Uh, and then they're fairly low speed, at least compared to what we have with Wi-Fi these days out here for communications. Both rely on some kind of thrusters for propulsion. We use props on our propellers on Orpheus and cold gas. Uh, on uh, Marco on here, but they do serve to orient the vehicle and provide maneuverability, have commercial off-the-shelf uh, type brains on board, and a software that is actually both sequence-driven. 
lessons from Bruy became the Marco uh, software. Lessons from Marco have now impacted Orpheus, and there's a great feedback between those various systems and the teams that we have. Excuse me, on the uh, on the Orpheus Raspberry Pi, was that a Raspberry Pi 4? Uh, Orpheus right now is using a Raspberry Pi 3, but it oh, really depends. Yeah, but it depends on what is out at the various time that we are uh, into the brains of Orpheus for any one of those. So it does get upgraded at times. And I apologize for those online if I wasn't speaking into the speaker as or into the microphone as well. In terms of mission characteristics, uh, our two vehicles are actually very similar or have some differences in here. For Marco, it's a one-way trip. You launch, you get it out. Uh, you're going to communicate with it for the duration of the mission there, but if anything goes wrong, no one is going to service this vehicle. Orpheus has about six to 12 hour trips. It's daily round trip on there, and uh, it can basically iterate along the way. With Marco, it's had a team of about 10 operators plus the entirety of the deep space network to communicate with this. And with Orpheus, we're still in kind of order of magnitude, about the same, two to four people to run it and the ship's crew to put it into the water and take it back out again. However, the cost of Marco, because really we wanted to make sure it would work, is around $18.5 million, where Orpheus, at the end of the day, is disposable, 500K or so. We can, uh, we can lose a vehicle there and continue our mission along the way. And Marco, of course, is a very small set. Many of our larger vehicles headed out to deep space are in the hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions. Kleena? No, it's entire mission cost on there for both. Uh, it is not per mission. So I think Orpheus has about 200K of hardware cost on there. Uh, and then it depends on what ship we're going out and what we're doing uh, for a daily cost. But a lot of this was the labor to put it together on there. So it's not quite apple to apple on the cost side, but also hard to break that down. So if we look at a lot of failures, and I would claim that this is true for ocean vehicles as well, failures can often be traced to inappropriate or inadequate testing, not getting enough time with our vehicle on there before we're going to launch it or deploy along the way. And the other part of it is maybe a misunderstanding of systems or processes with respect to that vehicle. If I'm not mistaken, were, uh, were there two Marcos that were sent on that mission and one of them perhaps had some problems. Oh, both Marcos had many problems along the way. And there were two Marcos that were up, both Wally and Eva. Uh, there were, um, the primary problem that you've likely heard about was with Wally and a cold gas system that it developed a leak 11 days after launch. And we had to change how we were actually gonna fly that craft out there, moving from one that was, um, we'll call it relatively high propulsion, five maneuvers or so on the way out to Mars, to something where we had to perform a uh, maneuver every 15 minutes uh, over six and a half months to stabilize it along the way. That's a whole other story. That was a fantastic uh, uh, use of, uh, of small sats, uh, cube sats. That's uh, marvelous. It, it was a great mission and one that really was supported by the entire community out there, uh, the CubeSat community and such as we got this to go forward. Uh, and now we're seeing the uh, the benefits from trying a mission like that. 
I'll, I'll repeat the question. Yeah. Uh, my question is for Marco 18.5 meaning was in 2018 or 2015 uh, what 2018 dollars yes yeah how about now uh luckily I am not uh, so the question was Marco was 18.5 million back in 2018 and frankly Orpheus numbers are back in about 2018 or 2019 luckily as Kalina well knows I am not on the financial side of things uh, so I cannot do the translation up to uh, today dollars on here. I can say that there are a number of other missions that have now gone towards interplanetary space that are built from universities along the way, uh, small companies, as well as NASA centers there. And like CubeSats around the Earth, there is a variety, a wide range of costs that have been associated with those there, uh, from the millions of dollars up to the tens of millions of dollars. Uh, there, there was actually, uh, I believe it was the flashlight mission that just uh, uh, unfortunately uh, was non non-functional. Uh, it's too bad that there wasn't a redundancy built into that. Uh, the uh, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that mission or not to uh, uh, illuminate some of the uh, uh, South Pole uh, craters on on the moon for uh, detection of uh, uh, frozen ices and so, such. But I believe this mission has now been uh, terminated due to some uh, uh, failure of the, uh, and I believe that was also a, a CubeSat, correct? That's correct. So Lunar Flashlight was another JPL mission operated by Georgia Tech that launched uh, back in um, 20, late uh, November of 2022 on there. Uh, it did have issues with its propulsion system where NASA and JPL have now uh, said that the mission is over with respect of mapping water ice in the moon, but it does continue to this day operated by Georgia Tech and quite successfully over there in terms of a checkout of many technologies uh, and such. And from working with the students at Georgia Tech, they have done an incredible job of uh, continuing that mission along in spite of some of the problems that it has had. Yes, I have a question. My name's Dan. Sure. Um, will Orphis be testing the Marianas Trench? And if so, when? We certainly hope so. We are looking to see when we might uh, get out to the Marianas Trench. Uh, we have been slowly increasing both our depth and operational complexity over time on here and towards uh, those opportunities. But like spaceflight, opportunities to get out to the various trenches are few and far between, far in between. So we are still working to see when we might get out there. Yeah. Well, that's great. And I think as a systems engineer myself, I uh, really, it excites me to see uh, your iterative approach to this uh, development uh, because the requirements are being developed along the way based on, on, on your experiences. And that's got to be exciting. Absolutely. Now, as a system engineer and one that works on a lot of the missions, both in spaceflight and elsewhere on here, I'm not someone who actually likes the requirements process or the uh, working through that along the way, but through this, through, as we go, especially as we turn things around very quickly on here, we derive uh, or we very much in some ways incorporate those requirements as we find them there. And we find that the vehicle as we go forward does bear that burden, that weight of experience, if you will, of lessons from the deep on there that essentially become our, our more formal requirements on the next iteration. It does take some time sometimes where you have to start with a different vehicle to break yourself out of that. Say, I've learned a lot in the past, but 
uh, are any of these requirements or these lessons overburdensome? And we need to change our way of uh, thinking about it, which is why some in some things like the ocean, trying different vehicles, seeing different perspectives on there can better optimize what you're doing forward. Yeah. And he, go ahead. Yeah, just thank you. That, that answered my question. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll kind of step from that to say that uh, whether it's chat GPT or any number of other autonomous things that we're start our AI that we're finding in our daily lives, likewise on these vehicles, we are starting to take advantage more and more of software in terms of what we can do with these missions. Autonomy is increasing and uh, able to perform more aspects of our mission than ever before in here. And with that, there is significant increase in complexity. One of the things that I still uh, always have an, an issue with is flying a Linux computer on any one of our vehicles here, as opposed to a simple microcontroller. Because often with a Linux system, there is a lot of baggage that comes along with it that any individual member on the team or even the team as a whole may not fully understand. For a long time, whenever you would launch Linux, every once in a while, it would boot up and suddenly start into a memory check, which would take five to 30 minutes to complete before your vehicle could actually boot on there. You never quite knew when that was going to happen along the way. And if you had someone who was very familiar with the system, maybe they could disable it. But it was complexity that could cause a challenge. So as our software increases in complexity, as we rely more on autonomy, should we not iterate more in a real world setting before we send something out on a one-way trip? And this is really where the crux of my argument comes in in that uh, we should be making use of the ocean environment where we can iterate with systems that are very close to what we are flying in space for a number of different uh, tests that might be out there. So what, uh, go ahead. Excuse, with the, uh, with the, especially with the Orpheus uh, uh, diver, uh, have you had any encounters with, uh, say, marine mammals? Uh, uh, I'm just curious if, if there were to be some life forms on Europa that perhaps would have some uh, curiosity as to what this uh, novel thing was that they were seeing. Uh, have you have you encountered any any sort of uh, uh, interactions with with any uh, marine organisms during your dives that you might need to anticipate in order to uh, to uh, interact with or avoid, uh, et cetera? Well, while we hope to find uh, some kind of life elsewhere in the solar system, yet we certainly have not at this point to Europa on here. In the ocean with Orpheus, there have been a few, uh, at least telemetry points where we have seen a sun attitude change that might be ascribed to some kind of larger life uh, off of Florida actually was where we saw something. Uh, we certainly with our various vehicles have seen larger life down there. I'll show you a couple of pictures in a second here. Um, with uh, uh, Bruy, it's been the Adelie penguins underneath uh, with uh, Orpheus, we weren't quite clear on what it might have been down there. And then um, with some of our um, some of our other vehicles, we've seen uh, octopus and other things uh, down at depth. We're not quite sure what all the um, what all the things will be that we need to anticipate there. But it's with those that I think we do well on at least the attitude side of designing for unexpected disturbance, if you will, and making our feedback loops and such robust to that. And at the end of the day, hopefully our response is stop 
don't keep moving around on there if you have a significant disturbance and allow ourselves to observe what's happening and then find an appropriate course of action. Whether we do that based on ground autonomy, I think really is um, something that will have to be developed. Hello, Andy. Yes. Hi, um, this is Lisa Gathard. I'm the uh, NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory Solar System Ambassador and also a citizen scientist. And I, I really do appreciate your presentation, um, especially with the kickoff of the video about Orpheus. Um, I have been sharing the mission about the deep ocean and the deep space and their correlation with humanities, how it really does apply with us um, from the deep ocean, because it does offer neutral buoyancy, much like we have our astronauts in, you know, having a spacewalk such as yesterday. Um, there are multiple things that we are doing with our ocean, such as mapping the entire seabed floor um, and our our lakes. And this is very important. So I really do like all the uh, understanding and opportunities of going to the Hadal Zone and Antarctica. I did share um, the Orpheus uh, video for our students who do first tech robotics that we support. And the 3D components that you shared in your presentation that you do use for such as Bruy. I, I really love how Bruy goes rolling underneath the, the ice ocean. And I shared this component as well. But the 3D components that you use, is there any specific additive manufacturing that you implement for the temperature level under the ice? So uh, with respect to the 3D printing there, and I do appreciate that you're able to share this with a wider community as well. Uh, brewery is unique. In the Arctic, in uh, cold under ice regions up there, it is actually warmer when you are in the water than when you are on the surface. In the water, it's above 32 Fahrenheit. It's water, right? It's not frozen ice on there, which for electronics is actually a very healthy temperature. On board brewery, uh, inside the housing itself, it's actually sitting around room temperature on there because of the processors, because of the use of uh, power on board. So it's not actually that bad of an environment within there. Now, we also use 3D printed parts down in the ocean when we're diving down to uh, depths on there, even with significant pressures. And uh, really the normal um, uh, fused pod manufacturing that we have in a lot of these desktop printers uh, I saw some of those things go down to uh, 5,000 meters uh, last summer on some of these vehicles here and still survive the pressure environments that is there. There are a lot of different filaments that are out there that your students can make use of that are have very temperature ratings and such. And I would argue that it is only tech or looking up those characteristics that you can find things out. But the quickest way is print it, test it, throw it in, see what happens, and then iterate from there. Okay, excellent. Um, one more question regarding the uh, manufacturing of these things. Um, I am sharing the new uh, term that has co been coined by our JPL 
members and another speaker with the NASA Ocean Worlds program, uh, such as Europa, Enceladus, and Titan. And going forward in sharing planetary oceanography, which is a new field that everyone is very excited about, which I am very excited to share um, with audiences young and old, uh, K through gray, as I say. Um, do you have any suggestions with respect to how the individuals may be involved? I know you have OceanX, and OceanX is a nonprofit organization, and you have HUI, which is Woods Hole um, uh, out of uh, uh, Maine. So I'm, I'm familiar with HUI and I'm involved with there. But what about the research vessel, the Neil Armstrong? It was recently docked in Charleston, South Carolina. We had uh, the SpaceX. Um, uh, one of their their vessels that was docked in in our Charleston harbor as well for dry docking. What about the the research vessels that are going out? Are you having more interest? So we continue to work with both Woods Hole and Scripps and other uh, oceanographic institutions for all of these. Uh, the research vessel Neil Armstrong is actually a Woods Hole vessel along with its sister ship, the Sally Ride, out of Scripps on here part of what's called the UNOLS organization. Uh, we do partner with many of them along with NOAA and others here for the uh, uh, deployment of these various vehicles. And we're uh, working together through a lot of these Ocean Worlds programs sponsored by NASA, by NSF and others on there to look for opportunities that we can test on there and also partner to bring uh, our educational colleagues along the way as well. Thank you so much. I truly appreciate the information. And I am familiar with uh, Scripps and the members that you just uh, shared. So that's very helpful to know. Thank you. Sure. Great. So and we, when we tie in the ocean to space exploration on here, there's really four areas that I would argue are ideal. There's the easy one. We want to explore ocean worlds. There's a great ocean world analog right here on Earth in that we have the we are an ocean world. We can take Brewery out, we can take Orpheus out, and it serves as a great analog. The next one is really the opportunity for iteration on here. And this is really where I'd like to expand to a more broader spacecraft sense, where if we are starting to send a craft out with new autonomy out into deep space or with communication capabilities on board that we have not otherwise tested, the ocean provides a great environment that we can iterate with real world effects on board for us to try and uh, improve the vehicle before we launch, improve the autonomy there. Because oftentimes in simulation, um, or in, uh, we find that we treat it a little bit differently on here. There's some aspects that are ignored along the way, or people just say it's a, it's a computer simulation. We don't get as much out of it. The third is really on this ops and autonomy test bed here. And this is something that we're trying to do with the buoyant rover because of its latent communication links, because of its um, uh, the low bandwidth that we have on board, we're actually using it to train scientists on how they might interact with a, uh, a vehicle on another planet 
but one where they have real science objectives they're trying to meet on Earth as well. In some ways, they're properly motivated to get this right because they care about the outcome on here. What we're hoping to do is actually take brewery up to the Alaska environment where we're looking for these methane seeps, allow it to operate over a couple of months on there with science operators remotely back down at JPL and have them drive the vehicle, plan it out, and have to balance their objectives for science against the energy constraints of primary batteries on board. A very real environment before they go and do the same thing on other worlds, even like uh, uh, on Mars with Ingenuity and with uh, Mars 2020. And then finally, the one that I haven't spoken about yet, which is multi-vehicle systems. As we start to develop more of our vehicles and get out to explore, uh, we're finding that uh, single vehicles are, well, they, they can only look at a very specific area. The multiplication of uh, opportunity that we are getting through the use of Ingenuity on Mars right now with M2020 has really been eye-opening. Ingenuity was supposed to be a tech demo, done within 30 days, five flights, and it was to be put to the side so the primary science could be done with perseverance. Now we are seeing that Ingenuity's mapping over there is informing the science opportunities for 2020. We are looking forward to how uh, various architectures in the future might make use of other potential uh, science helicopters and such, and how we can expand our presence using these methods on other worlds as well. But it's not only on the robotic side of things that uh, stuff gets interesting. I was lucky enough to have an opportunity last summer to uh, board uh, the research vessel Atlantis out there and dive with Alvin. And Alvin is a vehicle that has been around since the 1960s. Every aspect of it has been changed for that point, for which I am very thankful. Uh, but it is still uh, a very operating uh, vehicle that goes down into the depths of the ocean. It's now rated for 6,500 meters down, uh, so significant uh, part of our ocean, about halfway and just entering into the Hadal zone there. And up front, you have a seven and a half foot uh, titanium sphere that can hold up to three crew members on board. Just outside the, uh, the windows that are there, you have some robotic arms and a payload uh, basket that a number of different payloads can be mounted onto. And the rest of this is really for both survival as well as traversing underneath the ice. On our particular journey, as we went down, this is just under the surface. You can see one of the robotic arms here and an instrument we would later grab and sample some of the uh, chemical plumes. But as we approach the bottom, about 2,500 meters down, just outside one of the uh, port windows, we had an octopus just kind of uh, float by. Now, the unique thing about the ocean is if you go out there and dive in any individual spot, most likely you're going to find sand. And it's going to be planes and planes of sand at any significant depth, more than about 1,000 meters or so. There are hot spots. There are areas of significant uh, activity and interest down there where when you start to sample something, you might get a uh, tube worm that is just sitting off to the outside or even more exciting areas where we have uh, hydrothermal vents or the so-called black smokers out there. And then these just beautiful covered rocks uh, in the areas of these vents that have all of these different organisms that are on there kind of flowing with the currents uh, in the water there. So we have a broad area where there's pretty much nothing. And uh, we have a lot of uh, uh, more specific areas of high scientific interest. Alvin is a very expensive vehicle to run. There's a large ship behind it. Uh, there's a lot of human safety that has to be taken into account there. So you want to make every minute count on the way. 
Now you can't take that many people down. Uh, the, like I said, seven and a half foot sphere. However, you have half of it taken up by uh, life support equipment in there. Uh, you've got displays up above and you essentially have two benches that are underneath uh, the side windows, one motorcycle seat in the center. And there's three of you that are jammed in there for the duration of the trip. So there's not a lot of room for any of this. Well, what we really are looking at doing is trying to expand our reach for this. Because exploration is really an expansion of human knowledge in some manner, no matter what world you are trying to explore. And if we can use these robotic tools to expand our reach, then something like Alvin, then something like Artemis can still travel to where crew members can go to the most interesting spots, but use the robotic assets out there in a more multi-vehicle fashion to scout out and identify where those are before you send the humans out to those spots. So if we partner with multiple specialized assets, Orpheus for surveying the area over there, Ingenuity for trying to identify where uh, there are specific scientific or areas of scientific interest, or even Brewery for traversing under the ice where scuba divers will do the same thing and wash everything off the top there, we can multiply our reach along the way. But before we can get to that point, we really have to practice, we have to iterate, we have to improve our vehicles and our understanding of the software and autonomy that is there in order to be more effective in the environment here. So at the end of the day, field testing and whether uh, an operations really catalyzes uh, solutions that are out there. It forces you to come up with, well, deal with the failures that might be there, and it inspires the creativity in operations. By Starting with Brewery and miniaturizing, uh, looking to try and build something that could traverse under the ice for my travels at least, that has led now to uh, augmenting crude development of under ice explorers on there over the course of about a decade on here. And has actually improved the spaceflight operations and spaceflight systems that I'm involved in as we work at JPL. The analogs provide the realism. You want to find a good analog for the environment on there. And in space travel, those are few and far between. The ocean actually provides quite a few different parallels there that we might make use of. And as I've, sa I've said in different talks here, you really want to iterate. And you want to fail a lot along the way. If those failures are going to provide the opportunities and the motivation for you to then succeed, but you need the environment for which to do so. The real world risk acceptance there then provides options. We have our scientists that are no longer just dealing with a computer simulation, but are actually having to carry out a scientific mission. And then uh, doing things in a low cost uh, manner with research and development programs where you can iterate really provides that experience for handling the, uh, the uh, in-flight uh, failures that inevitably are going to happen along the way. So we have the oceans around the world. We have a very healthy research program uh, around the world as well with a number of different vessels. They are a valuable and accessible test bed. So let's use them here. Let's see how we can better partner between NASA, between other space uh, faring entities and the uh, ocean exploration community so we can improve our craft in both areas on there, but especially the autonomy, communication, and ultimately exploration. So that's my thesis for today on here. I hope you also enjoyed the photos along the way. I'm uh, open to any questions you might have, whether online or in person here. And thank you again for attending the AIAA talk. Yeah, back there first. Uh, yeah, since we have partners online, we'll we'll go through the microphone. No,
Um, what's the ETA? Uh, do you have any uh, deadlines for when you might actually uh, get to Europa or uh, some target you're shooting for? So the, of that? the Europa program is actually quite exciting right now because we have Europa Clipper that's going to be launching soon. Allow us to get that first kind of maps glance of the outside of the world over there. After Europa Clipper, we have hopes in the future and concepts out there for something like Europa Lander to touch the surface, get down, then we have to figure out how to get down through the ice, and then maybe brewery or descendant thereof might be able to get there. It's going to be a while, but that is some of the fun of space exploration on here is that you can work a full career on uh, working through all these steps in a totally unknown world. We have a lot of uh, interesting tech that's out there, whether it's EELS or the prime mission to uh, R&D efforts to try and dig down through the ice. And slowly we are getting to something that might work. But as for an ETA, I think we're still several decades out, if only because it takes us seven years to get out to Jupiter. So it's not very quick to reach that. So there, uh, the question was whether it's an opportune window to uh, fly out to Jupiter on here. And it really depends. We have incredible magicians at JPL when it comes to trajectories. And sometimes it's not necessarily alignment. It's how can we bounce between the various planets, tie that to the various technologies that we're looking at for propulsion on here that will maximize or optimize how we can get out there. Yeah. I just had two questions. One was uh, with all the open source technology, or I'm sorry, with the uh, COTS, we have three axis accelerometers that are fairly easy to leverage. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that in both Orpheus and Brewy that we're not leveraging three axis accelerometers to create like a Kalman filtered solution to position or navigation. So I was curious why that design decision was made. Both actually do use extended Kalman filters on board with an IMU on there. Oh, okay. I didn't point out a number of sensors that were also on there. Uh, but there is a common filter on board. They use an IMU, a COTS IMU that is there. Uh, Orpheus actually uses a uh, RG Pilot uh, derivative uh, in there for flying it around on board. And Brewery right now has three, I want to say three different IMUs because each pod can actually rotate independently on there. Uh, there's a challenge though with Brewery because the, there's motors inside there and with, well, the accelerometers are fine, the magnetometers are disturbed by the permanent magnets mm -hmm. in the motor. So every time we rotate, we have to recalibrate the entire vehicle in essence. So that's a whole lot of other fun. So one more question was yeah. uh, with JPL's challenge using using Linux versus microcontrollers, has there been any consideration for JPL developing like a JPL OS that would actually take the yeah. kernel and strip out all those things that you find problematic and then, you know, support an open source development effort to say we we have this nice you know space exploration or under ice or oceanographic os devoted entirely for mm -hmm. autonomy and uh, uh probe control if you will and I, and I want to be careful there to say that it is my problems with linux that i have seen over time as opposed to jpl as a whole uh on here just in terms of the complexity that is with the, the operating system on there there's a number of different systems that JPL uses. The one that is uh, very much being developed and used throughout the industry right now is something called F prime uh, that has uh, been very focused for the use of um, uh, both operations on board, as well as the inclusion of various autonomous aspects there. But each mission has different requirements. Uh, Marco actually flew two Linux computers on board as well. These little gum sticks computers running a fairly generic uh, version of Linux there. So 
we use all sorts of things depending on what our mission requirements are. And I think that's the most important piece of identifying what you are trying to do and do a design against that as opposed to trying to shoehorn uh, something in there. I think in a modular approach where you have a procedural file that actually covers standard aspects of operation and then you API and and it depends on the mission. There are various aspects. Uh, some missions do have things like that for fault protection and such along the way. Yeah, grab the mic here. So it's kind of a follow on to what you said. I, I liked your charts of the uh, Marco versus Orpheus. Do you have something similar that's Orpheus versus uh, future Europa or whatever Explorer and you now that you've gotten through a few looks like mission architecture iterations, are you now going the next level down and looking at COTS, but maybe space rated or something like that for particular as you go to deeper pressures mm -hmm. um, for putting out, is there a systematic way that you're doing that to actually enable and support uh, what people are looking at architecturally for these future missions? I'll say yes and no with some of that on there. We uh, we are certainly doing so more in the instrumentation and call it the external parts of the vehicle, the ones that actually interact with the environments on there for what we can miniaturize. The scientific community in particular has done a great job of looking at what instruments would be most applicable. And we're trying to fold those in to our architecture and design and start working with those. A good example was the uh, cameras versus a sonar system on board. Uh, while on a larger space mission, we might have the budget to afford a sonar. The power requirements, the size and such that sonar would require on there are likely not able to be carried for a Europa mission. And so by using the cameras and such and our camera analogs here, developing that technology, it's much more suitable from Europa, even though going to sonar would be far easier for the ocean exploration that we're trying to do. So there are some aspects of that, but we haven't done it on a holistic level at this point. Yeah, I have two questions about the Ophir's uh, technology. Uh, one, the first one is a multi-vehicle system architecture. When you say the multi-vehicle underwater systems, do they uh, establish a communication between each other or does the system include some the mother, the centralized operation include mothership operation center or something? Currently, for the two vehicles that we have, we are involving the mothership. Mm -hmm. where each one goes down, develops its own map, and only on its return to the surface do we share the maps and then merge them together. We are looking at an architecture in the near future where we will have inter-vehicle communications down there, and we're currently debating on whether we're going to do full map transport mm -hmm. or actually do a multi-vehicle slam where only the relevant nodes and knowledge is essentially exchanged on there. Uh, there are benefits to all of those. Uh, I like the multi-vehicle communication because then you can start throwing in additional ones like Alvin or these other uh, assets that you might have. There's something called Sentry and others that we're talking about as well in there. So I hope we we have to uh, investigate how much information do we have to share mm. as that will change the communication requirements that we have to build in. Yeah, thank you very much. Actually, we are, we are working with some multi-vehicle systems for their space mission and the yeah lunar surface mission so I, i'm mm -hmm. very curious about 
direct the architecture well and especially if you're working on the lunar side check out the cadre mission at jpl that's uh -huh. being developed that is a three rover system uh i think it's launching in 2024 2025 uh but they just went into testing the other day so yeah, cool they're doing quite well different different areas thank you very much yeah and uh, my the second question is i'm very curious about the vision system on the obvious mm -hmm. so the deep does the deep water the deep sea camera is a kind of cut product with retrofit or free scratch developed yeah what kind of countermeasures do they have or yeah for much of what we do on orpheus and our other vehicles we often uh will take a pressure housing that is rated for depth but just have cots equipment on the inside currently orpheus uses an mv blue fox usb3 camera uh mm -hmm. that is in there and works well brewery uses a low light uh, HD camera from Blue Robotics and a Raspi. We have both of them on, and an open MV camera. Uh, on my living room table right now, there is the next generation of the Orpheus cameras uh, that are actually going to be using uh, a voxel Snapdragon in there with a, a small camera module attached to that, that will have more ability to do onboard. Um, uh, visual odometry on there without relying on the rest of the processing system there. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're moving to very, very shortly. Well, that's very interesting. Yeah, thank you very much. Absolutely. Uh, hi. So I was actually kind of just looking up the camera. <laughs> so I was actually kind of curious about the choice of batteries on uh, Orpheus and on you know future Europa missions that you mentioned, uh, because in both cases you mentioned that these systems would likely use primaries, um, the alkalines for the Orpheus and lithium primary on a Europa mission. Now I'm just kind of curious why a primary instead of say like a nickel metal hydride rechargeable, and how are you going to deal with temperature if you're using a battery? Mm -hmm. A uh, couple things with it. First, the main thing to remember is that no architecture is yet chosen because no objectives have yet been identified for that on there. Once you have mission objectives, you can go down and look at how can I meet these objectives and then choose a battery system to or power system to really meet that there. Orpheus is using lithium batteries to allow us to recharge it out on the ship right now. We use something called inspired packs that have lithium ion cells inside there that have to meet a number of different safety requirements and other things that are there. For uh, Europa, when we head out there, it will really depend on what we are trying to do. And if we can afford mass-wise to have a large system with the complexity of recharging on board, or if we need to keep things incredibly simple and potentially smaller by using primary cells. As we found with, uh, with Brewery though, we don't have to worry about, or at least we haven't had to worry about the internal environment as much, because if you are in liquid water, by definition, you're almost in a temperature that the batteries are pretty healthy at. Uh, and so it's something that we all know, but it's not intuitive that it's actually pretty warm down under the ice there. Fair enough. And I think I must have gotten confused with um, the batteries on Orpheus and Brewy. Brewy is the one that's using alkaline primaries. Right? Correct. And and that is primarily yeah. because we want to transport it on a plane and yeah. have uh, issues. So, yeah. Okay. Um, I think I had the other question was, it'll come back to me. 
sir. Any questions online out there? Yeah, I have a, a question. Uh, with the increasing sort of focus on uh, ocean pollution, say with plastics, are there any uh, any applications that you foresee for some of these uh, some of these uh, uh, devices for either mapping uh, pollution uh, or perhaps even in, in cleanup uh, applications for for uh, for the oceans? So with the Orpheus vehicles here, we are looking at, well, they're designed for mapping certain environments and carrying payloads on board. We have partnered with NOAA in the past to carry payloads that they might have to survey environments with their eDNA program to map what biological life is out there. But I could absolutely see us carrying a payload to map what potential pollution or contaminants might be in the water as well. In terms of cleanup, again, we'd have to go back to what would be the, the mission objectives there, and is Orpheus the right vehicle for that? Because some of the vehicles that we have out there might have more endurance or more ability to uh, go near the bottom than perhaps what Orpheus has. And we often find ourselves saying, hey, we have this vehicle that could, should go and do this other task, but if it's not really optimized for it, uh, it may not be able to accomplish as well uh, for something like that. So we'd have to examine it a little closer. Uh, and and before you sign off, I would certainly like to uh, wish you the the best of uh, luck on your uh, NASA application for for the astronaut program. I I sincerely think you would make an excellent candidate, and uh, wish you the best of luck on that. Thank you. Okay. Hello, Andy. Yes. Um, it's Lisa Gathard again, once more. Just just to button up, and I apologize, I uh, misspoke when I stated Maine rather than Massachusetts for Huey, uh, which I, I should clarify that. Um, love your presentation. Wanted to question you uh, about, you mentioned partnerships, looking for other commercial entities that may be interested in um, com com continuing with competition or building or collaboration of efforts to get these products, not only to the Hadal Zone or the Mariana Trench, but also to Europa and Enceladus. And, you know, per perhaps, you know, other interplanetary uh, objects in our solar system. Um, there is Boeing, that has their um, missions with the US Naval Research Support. Now, Boeing has a lot of unmanned rovers that do have submersible entities and projects under the ocean on Earth and have been doing so since the 60s. Would there be latitude to partner with uh, Boeing on some of these projects or the US Naval Research Laboratory, being that they have the expertise that could perhaps help with this mission? Yeah, uh, JPL is always open to collaborating with uh, many different entities out there, and we do so on a lot of efforts along the way. And it's why we talk both at conferences and other places to find connections and such. So there's always latitude to explore partnerships and see what works best uh, 
uh, for any individual research effort. Okay. And one other thing is that I had, um, you know, we have so many astronauts when you train to be an astronaut, which I'm very excited for you, whether you go with NASA or to be a citizen astronaut. Um, there's always the training in the submersible uh, waters as an analog astronaut, which many of our public do not realize that you must be trained underwater in the neutral buoyancy lab before taking a spacewalk or being out in the International Space Station. Um, I feel we need more crew members for our ships, such as NOAA or OceanX, other research vessels. And we also need more individuals that know how to swim and dive. What do you say to this with our new next generation who is looking for something to explore? The uh, there's the importance of swimming and diving in general out there, not only for healthy exercise, but just for safety along the way that I would uh, fully support there. And then as we go forward, these are environments that you can tr start to explore and uh, investigate yourselves as citizen scientists uh, before even um, going into more formal efforts as well. And absolutely, the astronauts that are out there uh, and our training in neutral buoyancy lab uh, have done a lot, have a long history of working with those uh, areas there. And I, I have seen uh, certainly in the news and in other places where there have been partnerships at times uh, where our astronaut program has uh, looked for analog environments and such on there. I think as we continue to develop opportunities for where we might have crude operations along with robotic assets and such, NASA will continue to examine what would be best for training as they go into the future there. Thank you very much and uh, best of luck to you for your uh, candidacy. I, I really appreciate your speaking with us. Absolutely. Um, John, Mr. Rudish, uh, would you like to speak out? He entered a question in Q&A. Um, John, your mic is enabled. You are welcome to Unmute yourself. Um, if not, he, he posed a question. Have you been working or do you, do you plan to work with the U.S. Navy and or Space Force? What has been interesting, uh, certainly with the Alvin dives, is that it is actually a U.S. Naval vessel with Atlantis as well as Alvin. They're operated by Woods Hole. So UNOLS and the broader ocean community is very tied into uh, the U.S. Navy, just as uh, NASA is very connected with our launch opportunities to working with uh, Space Force and Department of Defense and others on there. Uh, so it kind of, as, as we've talked on some of the previous questions here, NASA as a whole continues to collaborate and look for collaborations, not only within our own uh, parts of the agency, but outside as well to best achieve the mission objectives and uh, serve our nation in uh, terms of space exploration and exploration in general here. Okay, uh, there's another question. Uh, it said, can you say a few differences with ROV for oil and the gas subsea application? Uh, could you repeat that? R uh, your ROV 
for oil and the gas subsea under the sea application. Let me. Yeah, take it. Take it. Oh, okay. Uh, so the question was, uh, speak to some of the, uh, the uses of ROVs for oil and gas, uh, the pipelines and such that are under the ocean on there. The oil and gas industry has been one of the leaders of uh, ocean activity, commercial usage out there of these platforms and does develop a lot of the technologies that are then used by the scientific community and vice versa along the way. Some of the things that uh, you might uh, use these these ROVs for would be surveying uh, various pipelines, looking for when there is a burst, such as was in the Gulf of Mexico or elsewhere on there, for what happened and for repair there. And I know Woods Hole has been tied into uh, some of those over time as well. Uh, very good. Um, any question uh, online? Uh, you, you can put type in chat or uh, a quick raise hand. Okay, if not any question locally here. Okay, uh, so let's uh, thank uh, Dr. Andy Crash again. Um, really uh, appreciate this wonderful, wonderful talk. And on behalf of the AIWA Los Angeles Las Vegas section, we have uh, uh, a very nice uh, appreciation certificate presented to Dr. Crash. So uh, here is our, let me ask some help for a picture. So yeah. Or let me do this. Oh, can you help take a picture? Sure. Yeah. For, for... Yes. So thank you, Andy. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. This is wonderful. Thank you. Can you take one second? Take, sure. take a picture. Sure. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you everyone for coming. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so you are welcome to stay here and uh, we have cookies on the back. Uh, we can brew another coffee. You're welcome. We have the room TO2. Uh, you're welcome to stay. And for folks online, if you want to stay, that's fine. Otherwise, you know, we will close the online session. Uh, so our next next event uh, is two weeks from today in the Longdale Library. It's going to be very exciting because this year marks the 30th anniversary for discovering the famous comet Shoemaker Libby 9. And we have a plan annual planetary defense mini conference uh, that day. So we have speakers from Aerospace Corporation, University of Arizona, and different places. And one of the co-discoverers, Dr. Levy, uh, he's going to speak online. He's the only re remaining person for Shoemaker Levy because the husband and wife, uh, uh, Mr. Shoemaker, Mrs. Shoemaker, they passed away. You know, the Mrs. Shoemaker passed away two, two years ago. We have an obituary uh, in our newsletter. Uh, so Dr. Levy is the only remaining person for this famous discovery. And next year is the 30th anniversary for the collision onto uh, Jupiter. So uh, this, is, this year is going to be a very exciting uh, event. Actually, um, I, the event is very well uh, known and uh, uh, because of this. And uh, hopefully you can join us. 
And, uh, and also please uh, uh, consider if you are not a member, please kind of join us. Uh, and if you are a member, please stay with us and uh, let me know what we can do for you. And uh, we have more exciting events coming up. So please stay with us. Uh, so thank you so much again. I do appreciate it. So uh, have a wonderful day and weekend. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. 